Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me for today's podcast is Luke Box. Luke, how are you doing? Oh, you know, living living the dream, the the COVID isolation dream. You're living a dream. I feel like we have a lot of nightmare topics to talk about today. Um, on today's show, we are going to discuss the emerging debate about how to keep teachers safe in schools as students resume in-person learning early in the semester here. We're also going to talk about the beginning of Republicans' push to limit access to absentee ballots following the 2020 election. Different Republicans in the General Assembly introduced a whole slate of bills that would make it more difficult to vote. And then finally, at the end of the show here, I want to spend a few minutes on the Marjorie Taylor Greene saga and an alarming report out of the AJC that said that militia groups are uniting to advocate for Georgia's secession of the union. There's a lot of like radical right-wing extremist politics that has really become central and accommodated by uh, Republicans in our state and in in Congress in Washington. Want to talk about that situation and and that alarming report. Uh, but Luke, let's start here with this debate about reopening schools and, and how to keep teachers safe. Following a string of COVID-related deaths among Georgia educators, Teachers have promoted COVID vaccines as the one guaranteed way to keep them safe in the classroom. There's been multiple reports in the AJC about teachers concerned about the conditions that they're working in, about the conditions that students are returning to as districts across the state, and particularly in the metro Atlanta area, address this question of reopening for in-person learning. And so then there, so there's been this call to move teachers up in the vaccine priority list, try to get them vaccinated so they can stay safe in the classroom. Luke, give us just sort of your initial thoughts on on this debate. What are you looking for in terms of how best to keep teachers safe in the classroom? This, this is a complicated issue. <laughs> Goes without saying, we wouldn't be talking about it probably if it wasn't. Uh, and I think the thing that I'm looking for and have always been trying to pay very close attention to is what does the science say this is one of those few issues though that i think is is like particularly complicated because the science is actually going in two directions in the sense that the covid science we've discussed on this show you've heard it probably it's pretty you know well understood the things that are good for covid the things that are bad for covid but the the thing that i feel like is not as well understood now and we are going to be finding out more and more in the future and i think is going to look worse and worse as we go on is just how bad virtual learning has been for everyone i just got out of a three-hour virtual learning uh master's uh a public administration class so if i'm uh, brain dead <laughs> or saying anything stupid blame it on that it's awful it's terrible i mean it's so bad and i don't see how anyone does it i am a you know grown <laughs> man <laughs> who is interested in the subject that he's learning about and i chose to go to this program i paid money to go to this program and it's hard it's really hard for me to do it and so for kids to do it i don't know how any of them do it i don't know how anyone of any age in school handles that virtual environment every day and i mean the burnout that they're experiencing must be incredible the amount that they're behind must be incredible there's been study after study just showing the consequences for food security for physical security i mean i you know there's it's dynamic and very very uh harsh on what kids have experienced just by dealing with virtual learning so that is a really difficult thing to balance because i mean there's a reason why buying has really honed in on getting kids back in school there's there's a reason trump talked about that all the time and it's because of this complicated landscape and the other consequences that stem from it and so getting to the heart of your question like what do i want to see i want to see people balancing those concerns in a logical and honest way and so far have not i have not seen that as much as i i want to uh, mostly on the honesty point, uh, the lo- the they go through the right logical progression, but they don't um, acknowledge the reality of what we're seeing as much as I'd like. A lot of what you said, Luke, animates this push for reopening, particularly for younger kids 
where to date, what we know about COVID is that they are less likely to contract COVID-19, less likely to spread it, less likely than adults in this instance here. Um, that I think is still evolving science, evolving information. We're learning more about this pandemic as it spreads. And we're also learning more about variants of the disease as the disease mutates. Um, so there's still a lot to unpack there. At the same time, kids' experience in school when they're younger is is some of the most important phases of their education. But I think what has been challenging for me is you've seen leading policymakers who are on the side of reopening schools, most notably Governor Kemp here, although, as you mentioned, both former President Trump and, and current President Biden, they are also pushing for schools to reopen. Everybody seems to have latched on to this idea that schools are not major contributors to the spread of COVID. And this is something that Biden's CDC director has said. Biden's CDC director has also said that vaccinating teachers is not a prerequisite to opening up schools safely. But I think what's important to understand about the science on this and the challenges of reopening schools is that that vaccines not being a prerequisite statement is attached to the idea that you are also putting in place extensive safety protocols in schools and extensive safety protocols in the community that would limit the spread of COVID-19 in the community and make it more likely that having children in a school environment with teachers, making it more likely that that is a safe activity because overall we are working in a lot of different areas to reduce the spread of COVID-19. And specifically on some of the things that schools have to do, they have to require face masks of their students. They have to reduce crowding in their school by separating kids in the classroom and probably by running on a hybrid schedule so that only part of the student population is present at the school at one time. And then in the community, researchers recommend that you stop schools from engaging in close contact sports and you put into place limits on the opening of close contact businesses like restaurants and bars and movie theaters, nail salons, all the ones that were the subject of Governor Kemp's early push to reopen the state early last summer. And so we're seeing a lot of policymakers that are pushing the ball towards reopening schools as quickly as possible. But those other pieces to me just aren't in place. And I just don't feel like when you look at the rhetoric from policymakers, from the governor, all the way down to school district leaders, that they're really being straight with teachers and parents about the challenges here and about how dangerous it really could be to reopen schools in the middle of this pandemic. Right. And that's exactly what I was hitting on with my honesty point. And the thing that's so frustrating about this is they're not even managing to do it within the four walls of the school because, you know, Georgia unfortunately got itself on the map a lot uh, during the early COVID days because of a picture um, that most of you probably remember of a Georgia high school where, you know, a good third of the people in the picture weren't wearing a mask and they're all crowded together in a hallway. And the thing that's so frustrating to me is out of everything that's going on, the one complaint that I hear from, you know, school administrators, you know, teachers, etc., is this like, we can't make people wear masks thing at the school, which is so ludicrous because anyone who went to high school uh you know in the past 20 years uh knows that high schools are excellent at one thing universally and that is administering dress codes and forcing people to have you know skirts that are so high or low and you know not wearing tank tops and etc cetera, etc cetera. like masks can be mandated masks can be administrated people can be punished for not wearing them like this is not hard but it becomes hard because of the fake political positions that people have created for themselves around mask wearing and it's just ridiculous to me that that one simple thing can't be done and i'm hoping with trump not being the president anymore we're going to move away from that one and we're also going to move away from the issues around testing 
Uh, but that one is actually more difficult. Even now, even though now we have a president in President Biden who actually wants to test people and wants to follow the advice on having surveillance testing, that costs money. And the schools don't really have a lot of money right now. And this is where I think Kemp is failing, is in this area that we're, we're broaching into right now, is that he's acting like Georgia schools can open without a lot of these prerequisites. And I, I again, I'm sympathetic to the keeping businesses open arguments. I don't agree with them, but I understand them as arguments and that they are they're making a policy trade-off, they're making a policy decision. The thing that is really concerning to me is that Kemp is citing the CDC, citing these other sources about schools being a place that we can open up safely without doing all the prerequisites that those folks want them to do, like testing, like making sure everyone's wearing a mask. And this is where it goes back to what we were talking about on our previous shows about not dipping into the rainy day fund to fund some of these expenditures, not asking the federal government for more help. He just pretends that these aren't problems. And that is unforgivable in this situation and makes the whole debate on really a, a false ground because he refuses to acknowledge these things to the extent he needs to. Yeah, I mean, the thing that he does and the thing that his communication staff does is they say, well, school districts in our state and states across the country have gotten a bunch of federal money from the coronavirus relief bills from last year. And it does seem likely that they will get more money out of the relief bill that President Biden wants to have passed in, in the Congress here in the next month or so. But the money from the fall has not enabled schools to set up surveillance testing programs. From what I could find, it looked like Atlanta Public Schools and Marietta City Schools were possibly the only districts in the state that were actually in the middle of putting together a full surveillance testing program for their schools. Um, and a lot of them cite resources as a challenge to not being able to do that. And it's not clear to me, and this could be just lost in the communication, but it's not clear to me that the governor has taken it upon himself and like the state's leadership from like the state school superintendent to help schools solve these problems. The schools could spend the federal money. That'd be fine. But is he helping school districts arrange with contracts from vendors to get these tests into schools? Is, is the state school superintendent or state school board doing any of that kind of work so that districts don't have to navigate this entirely by themselves? The other piece of this, too, is that a lot of teachers feel like politics is overly influencing school district decisions about reopening because school districts are constantly changing the metrics by which they choose to reopen, whether they're looking at the rate of new cases in their community or any other kind of metrics of spread, it seems like those are getting watered down as schools and school districts feel political pressure to reopen. And so to me, this is sort of where I would like to see Governor Kemp step into a leadership role here, show that he's helping school districts set up the processes they need to reopen, even if what they're doing is spending federal money and not state money. And if he wants those districts to reopen really soon, and schools are saying, well, we don't have enough money right now, can they put money into the amended budget to help get schools up and running on masks and surveillance testing, and then get some of that money back from the feds after they pass the COVID-19 relief bill, the one that's going to get passed in the next month or so. And it's, to me, it's the the standing in the middle and saying, because to, to Governor Kemp's credit, he has not required schools to reopen. He just simply says he would like them to. At the same time, he's not stepping up and sort of directing the federal response and the local response, trying to coordinate those things to make this process feel a little more transparent and a little more acceptable for teachers. And so that's why I think you're seeing teachers and state lawmakers, some members of Congress say, the one answer here is to get vaccines for teachers. And Governor Kemp has declined to move teachers up 
the priority list for vaccines, basically saying, A, we don't have enough vaccines, and that's true, and that's not his fault, and that's fine. But B, that there are all these other policies in place that should make it safe to reopen schools. And as we've talked about, those don't appear to be in place. And Luke, another thing that um, the state did was they actually penalized a healthcare provider in Elbert County that had moved teachers up their own vaccination list locally and had been providing vaccines to teachers. Uh, the Department of Public Health blacklisted that particular healthcare provider in Elbert County from receiving vaccine supplies for six months. They are going to send vaccine supplies to other healthcare providers in that area, but local healthcare providers there are saying um, that they don't have the capacity to to actually get these vaccines into arms the way that the blacklisted provider does. And to me, Luke, this was a little reminiscent of when he did sue, I think it was the city of Atlanta over the mass mandate. Like, I this mean, sort he sued of like Keisha Lance Bottoms individually as well. <laughs> don't forget. But just like a like an overly punitive enforcement decision while not really contributing constructively to the underlying policy problem. The one thing I want to be clear on, I am sure there's a bunch of people in the Georgia State government and Department of Health in Kemp's office that are working very hard on this. But I think this is where leadership, the thing we've been talking about, comes in, is that there's just not a clear directive of someone on top of this who has the authority to make things happen. Because while I understand, you know, the federal government is who is distributing vaccines and Georgia only gets so much of it every day or every week. And, you know, that's all you get. The process for actually trying to get signed up for vaccines right now is very bad where people are having to go to multiple websites, go to multiple counties and try to find whoever has it available. And while aiming for the people over 65 is a liable goal and is, you know, one, I I understand why they went in that direction. The thing I'm just become surprised about is that, the, you know, there, there's two big things that surprise me a lot in this conversation. Is one, that the government seem, seemingly was surprised when they opened it up to over 65-year-olds and then a bunch of them applied and way too many applied to even get the vaccine and no one has the capacity to deal with it. That does not seem like it would be a surprise. I feel like mathematically, you could look and see how many vaccines do we get? How many people are over 65 in the state of Georgia? One of those numbers is way bigger than the other. And so the fact that they were surprised that they didn't have enough, or at least have not communicated appropriately with the people of Georgia of like why it's so hard to get a vaccine, even though I'm in a group that's supposed to be able to get one, that surprises me and is concerning. And then the other thing is, too, is like it, it should not have been a surprise to anyone that teachers would want vaccines before they teach again in person. And if this was going to become the conversation, I just don't see why teachers weren't ahead of over 65 to begin with, because we have said like from the start of this like, this is not a new conversation. It's been a conversation from the start of the pandemic that we want to get teachers and students back in school in person. And so, like, that is something I think pretty much the whole country agrees on. Very, one of the very few things. And I just don't see why teachers weren't already in that group, in this, in the, you know, the urgent care providers and the hospital workers and the doctors, like why weren't teachers in that same group? Because we've treated them that way from the beginning. And that, that still confuses me. Yeah. I'm a little more agnostic about whether teachers should have been in that initial group of over 65 people. I mean, the argument on the other side is that this virus is particularly deadly for people who are elderly and people who have health conditions that put them at risk. And so if you maximize the number of vaccines that are going to the most vulnerable people, you're going to cut down on the death rate and fewer people dying is obviously a, a laudable policy goal. But I think you have to understand that if you're not going to put teachers at the top of the list, 
then you either have to clear a really high bar to put non-vaccinated teachers back in the classroom, or you have to be honest with parents and students and, and teachers in this state that school reopening is going to have to wait a little while longer. And I, you know, the the lack of clear communication here seems to me to make that problem worse because of how tired parents are, how tired and frustrated students are with virtual learning and them sort of just being ready to to get everybody back in the classroom. Because it's been interesting to me that this has very quickly been framed as a fight between parents who want their kids back in schools and teachers who are concerned about the safety of their classrooms. And a lot of media has treated this like a, like teachers unions asking for too much, like when they ask for, for pay increases or, or try to collectively bargain for, for better working conditions. Like these are the demands of teachers. I mean, the thing that they're demanding is like a baseline base level, safe work environment. And they're not guaranteed to get it when we're seeing teachers that are dying from COVID. And they're also feeling a certain level of disrespect because of how district leaders have treated them. I'm sure most of our listeners probably have seen this, but if you haven't, look up the instance of what happened in Cobb County when the superintendent of that district and a couple of board members refused to put on a mask during a moment of silence to honor an elementary school art teacher who taught in the district and who had died of COVID-19. That was like an infuriating example of how districts and policymakers have treated teachers during this entire episode. And so to me, it's like, it's not surprising that teachers are worried about getting back in the classroom because there's not a lot of signals from leadership that their safety is a top priority. Yeah, and th- and that is really at the heart of my frustrations with Kemp is that just paying lip service and saying, I think schools are important and people should be there in person is not enough in this situation. This is a place where he has to be the leader. Let's move on here and talk about this push to limit access to absentee ballots in Georgia. So Republicans are beginning to make good on their promise that they made before The legislative session over the last about 10 days or so, there's been a slate of legislation introduced that would limit access to absentee ballots. Um, There's a couple of different packages of legislation, one bill that combines a bunch of policies into one proposal, and then one group of eight separate bills that that were introduced. A lot of them touch on similar policies here, so we're going to kind of group all of these together, but basically it gets at... uh, limits on absentee voting or eliminating entirely no excuse absentee voting, ID requirements for absentee voting, stipulations on the drop boxes that were used for people to turn in their absentee ballots, restrictions on sending out applications for absentee ballots, and then some other things dealing with registration, like a proposal to get rid of automatic voter registration at the state's DMVs, and a proposal to prohibit people who moved to Georgia after a general election, but before a runoff to prohibit people from voting in that runoff right after they move. Um, We will put an article in the show notes that Stephen Fowler over at GPB wrote, where he summarizes all of these proposals, uh, if you want to take a look at the gory details here. But Luke, we are here now. Uh, We said that this legislative session was going to probably be very focused on voting. It's not that we're geniuses. It's that that's all people have been talking about since the runoff and even before the runoff. What do you make of these proposals and Republicans following through on this promise to make limiting access to absentee ballots a central issue of this legislative session? I think it tells you that they still support Donald J. Trump. They still think that it is politically advantageous for them to support the big lie that the election was stolen from him in the state of Georgia. And I think that that is their political priority right now. As you know, addressing our, our last topic, I've heard far more from the Republicans in the state legislature, from Brian Kemp, from Brad Raffensperger, from every elected official on the GOP side about voter suppression activities they want to engage in than trying to reopen the schools. And so this is their number one political priority, standing by Donald Trump. It's it's just that simple to me. 
there is this emerging divide among Republicans. There is a certain base of Republicans in the state Senate, many of which signed on to a lawsuit that was filed by Texas after the general election seeking to overturn the results of the presidential election in Georgia. Many of those members have signed on to the most aggressive voter suppression bills that have been introduced in the state Senate. The Republican state party chair, David Schaefer, he also put out a report where they're asking for even more aggressive limits on voting. They're clearly in one camp and clearly on the more suppressive side than where you see the leading Republicans in the state land, uh, Governor Kemp, House Speaker David Ralston, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. They all appear a little skeptical of the most aggressive bills that have been put forward by the base legislators, but they are interested in increasing ID requirements for absentee ballots. And they continue to peddle this message that it should be easy to vote and hard to cheat in Georgia. The Georgia Chamber of Commerce basically signed on to a similar statement. But that sort of plays into this idea that some of these elections have been cheated, that there is some level of election fraud that we have talked about over and over again simply does not exist. Do you think, Luke, that there is a meaningful difference between the place that Kemp and Ralston and Duncan and and some of the more moderate Republicans, the place that they position themselves relative to the most aggressive vote suppressors on the right flank of the Republican caucus? There is zero difference. The the On this issue, they are not moderates. They are all extremists. It is currently, I would argue, impossible to commit a mass voter fraud in the state of Georgia because this is an issue in which, for good reason, people have taken it seriously for a very long time. Member of both parties have worked very hard to set up systems that are safe and secure for voting because... Nobody who's an elected official would like to have an election stolen from them. You know, it's just like it's it's a thing that they have a very vested self-interest in keeping the system from being difficult to hack or difficult to steal in any way, shape or form. And the thing that's so frustrating here is what the extreme vote suppressors, Brian Kemp, David Ralston, Brad Raffensperger, Jeff Duncan, what they would like to do is to make it harder to vote because we already have the equation of security to ease is already, you know, very, very heavy on the security and very light on the ease. And the thing that's so frustrating is during this election cycle, we actually did several things to make it easier to vote. We did, we, you know, Brad Raffensperger (laughs) mailed out absentee ballot requests to every Georgian he get, who was registered to vote. Excuse me, not every Georgian, just the ones registered to vote. He created an online portal to request absentee ballots. We created drop boxes for absentee ballots to be deposited into. There's all these things that we did that made voting easier in Georgia. We did all of these audits. We did all these recounts. Found basically no fraud whatsoever. The Secretary of State office even put out a statement basically bragging about how many people vote in Georgia and how easy it is to do it and how safe it is to do it. And so both things cannot be true. I've been saying this. I'm going to keep saying it until they pass this bill and sign it and we have to campaign against the on it. Uh, this is purely to mollify Donald J. Trump and his base. That is the only thing they are trying to do because their own government that they run has said in every possible way that they can say it, that the Georgia elections were secure. And so the only reason they are doing this is to make it harder for people to vote. And they think the people it's going to make it harder to vote is going to be Democrats and not Republicans. They think they will be advantaged by this. And I really don't think they will, but that's a different conversation. So I'll leave that thread hanging for now. But I just don't see any difference at all. Luke, Democrats did come out pretty aggressively opposed to most of these proposals. The Senate Minority Leader Gloria Butler, she described it as voter suppression. 
Uh, State Senator Tanya Anderson, she said that it was an orchestrated attempt to undermine the political shift that the state is undergoing. Voting advocates like Fair Fight obviously were pretty opposed to these. They called it an unhinged set of voter suppression bills. So at least initially, Democrats appear pretty unified in opposition to these bills. But the one proposal that seems to have a lot of Republican support, the idea of adding additional ID requirements to absentee ballots, that does have broad support in the polling. And a poll that AJC did showed that nearly three quarters of voters said they wanted additional verification on absentee ballots. Do you think Democrats should just continue to outright oppose these bills, saying that they're buying into this non-existent voter fraud narrative? Or is there some necessity on the part of Democrats to negotiate, try to make these policies a little better, um, and accept to some degree the premise put forward by Republicans that we need changes to our election laws? It is a false premise that we need changes to our election laws. Period. Full stop. You know <laughs> that 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 is unnegotiable in my mind because they have already done so many things to make it difficult to vote in this state. That at this moment, as a, we're speaking, as of everything that I've seen from Brad Raffensperger, again Brad Raffensperger, the person who says we need to change all the laws, is that the previous election two elections that we held, the 2020 general election and the 2021 general general runoff, there was no fraud. There was no problems. And so you only have to change things when there's problems or when there's problems you can foresee in the future that if the changes you made will prevent future problems. And that's not what this bill will do. And that is why you should not support it if you are a sane thinking person who likes democracy and wants to pursue democracy. Now, for Democrats in the legislature, it's a little tricky. The The first thing I would say is the legislative process is weird. And many a time I've seen legislators work publicly in trying to change a bill, a bill to make it better in their mind and then vote against it. This is an instance in which Democrats should make suggestions and if they think their republican colleagues will accept those changes then like that's great but they shouldn't trade their votes for that um because the the message here needs to be very very clear because it is the reality that the republicans are only doing this because donald trump said it was a problem had jeb bush been president and not campaigned against absentee ballots this conversation would not be happening and the thing I just find amazing, I have to bring this up every single time we talk about this issue, is the reason we have no excuse absentee voting that was easy in Georgia is the Republicans, because Republican consultants thought this was a good way to win elections for Republicans. And in the state of Georgia, it has been an excellent way for Georgia Republicans to win elections until 2018, where Abrams actually did get more absentee votes than Kemp did. And I, I mean, I think they're just grateful for uh, Trump making such a big issue out of this because it gave them an excuse to do something they probably been thinking about doing. And I mean, the thing here that's so f- stupid about this conversation is, again, one, it's distracting away from the more important issue we spent the first topic talking about. But two, I ultimately don't think this is going to help them nearly as much as it think they think it will. Um, because really what the problem here is for Republicans is a political problem. They have this problem where more human beings don't want them to be in power than the human beings that do. And so their theory is if we make it harder for human beings to vote, we'll win. But I don't think that's how it's actually going to play out. Because the thing is, is Democrats have made it very clear that elections are important and that elections are fair and free and that that is the way you get into power. And Republicans have started to lose that thread of that being an important thing. And they can change this law. All we're going to do is organize harder and work around it and try to find ways to show people that voting still matters and it's worth the effort of going through. 
and we have a bunch of organizations and campaigns who've been doing that for years, and if you change the rules on us, we're just going to learn those new rules and do a better job than you, because, again, instead of them trying to say, man, maybe there's something wrong with our message, maybe there's something wrong with how we run our campaigns, they're so focused on trying to make it harder for us to win that they're completely ignoring the fact that they've been losing. One other piece of this where people like Kemp and Raffensperger position themselves relative to the the more radical base of the Republican, particularly the Senate Republican caucus, there are voter registration groups across the state that are complaining about investigations that have been launched by Secretary of State Raffensperger into these groups, questioning whether or not they've acted illegally in some of the information that they have mailed out to voters trying to get people to register to vote, trying to get registered voters to the polls. The the voter registration groups are saying that's, that the Secretary of State has basically launched sham investigations without providing any real evidence that any of these groups have actually broken the law. And that was a glaring reminder to me of the conduct of Brian Kemp when he was Secretary of State, when on the eve of the 2018 election, he accused the state Democratic Party of attempting to hack into the voter registration system without any evidence at all, without any basis for this claim. But, you know, ultimately, the state's attorney general determined that there was no evidence to support Brian Kemp's claim when he was Secretary of State, and now state Democrats are actually suing Governor Kemp over that what was essentially a press release investigation that he conducted right before the 2018 election. To me, this is sort of overlooked in when you have the more radical Republicans that are a little clumsier and making more noise about this, that more sophisticated, more advanced Republicans have used official levers of power like the investigative process that the Secretary of State has to drum up this conspiracy theory around election fraud. And this is another instance where I think they get off too easy and and people should should not lose sight of the fact that they are abusing procedural tools at their disposal just as much as the uh, the radical wing of the state Senate caucus would like would like Republicans to do. Let's move on to our final topic here, and that is the saga of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, Greene was stripped of her committee assignments by mostly Democrats in the U.S. House of Representatives. That's after most of Washington seemed to discover well into January about all of the Islamophobic and bigoted statements that she's made, about all of the conspiracy theories that she has embraced, and about how poor a representative she is for the people of Northwest Georgia. Luke, just to start with Marjorie Taylor Greene, and then I think we'll get into the bigger issue at hand here about where uh, particularly right-wing politics is going, what did you make of this episode uh, regarding Greene in in Congress last week? I think this is a complicated issue, to be honest, because... Like, does Marjorie Taylor Greene actually represent that district? I mean, she is the legal, you know, congressional representative, but I mean, they voted for her, and these things were not secrets uh, that she held. You know, this was not, you know, a secret blog post that she had. This was public Facebook videos that she regularly shared and Twitter posts that she made and, you know, videos she put out. So, um, you know, to start, like, is it really that much of a secret? Um, in, in in Northwest Georgia's defense, while she did not hide those old videos, she also did not make that the primary point of her campaign. Like she was not, you know, I'm campaigning with Q and my, my, her campaign ads and also her opponents really never used it against her in a real way. Um, her, you know, the brief time she had a Democratic opponent, they did, but, um, they, you know, for the most part, if you weren't actually watching her social media feeds, you would not know the full extent of her crazy. You definitely would see her as a super conservative person who fights and shoot things with her AR-15, but you would not see, 
uh, the folks in it for crazy. So I, I, think, I think that John is, Cowan kind of did though. He did it. Yeah. I mean, yes. He said but, he was like the conservative without the crazy, but yeah, I think it's, he was too you know, subtle. Okay. Like it was for, a little under the for radar. For a primary election, he was too subtle. Okay. So that, that's, that's the first thing. And I start there because one thing I think is really important is voters get their choice. If that's who voters want, they should get them. The thing that is in the power of political parties and the government, though, is to say, we don't accept you in our party. There are people who have been kicked out of parties before, and there are people who, while legally were the representative of a party, uh, were not endorsed by that party and you know very strongly condemned. I mean, probably the most prominent example of this that does not need a whole lot of explanation is George H.W. Bush telling people, don't vote for David Duke. <laughs> He's, you know, he's a Klansman. <laughs> Don't vote for him. Um, and so, like, there's a history of this happening. I mean, even in more recent times, Steve King, who is a Republican congressman from Iowa, who is a white supremacist and said white supremacist things, he got kicked off of his committees. And it was not that hard of a problem once it reached this temperature, the same temperature that Marjorie Taylor Greene has reached. Because in the same way that, like, you and I were not surprised that Marjorie Taylor Greene had said all these things because we heard about it because we're from Georgia. A lot of the things Steve King had said had been on a lower temperature and a lot of people were unaware of just how racist he was. And when he actually reached that threshold, they were willing to kick him out um, of those committees. And so, you know, again, like the Republicans don't have to caucus with her just because she wants to be a Republican. They don't have to accept her and they don't have to let her be on committees. And the thing here is just the extent to the things that she's said, because like, again, we're recording during the impeachment trial. Donald Trump, to my knowledge, never said, shoot Nancy Pelosi, hang Mike Pence. He never said those things. While Marjorie Taylor Greene did support people saying shoot Nancy Pelosi. So on that front, there's no there's none of this like subtlety free speech argument bullshit that we're dealing with here. Like she's been very, very explicit. And the things that she believes are just ridiculous and not it's not even a left right thing. It's like you wouldn't want anyone around you who believes these things. You wouldn't want your pastor to believe these things. You wouldn't want your car salesman to believe these things. You wouldn't want your pizza guy to believe these things. Um, and yet, like, she's in Congress, one of the, very, like, highest positions in the United States government. Right now, she has that job. And the Republicans, and in on the federal level, have just accepted her and embraced her in a way that is very dangerous considering not only what she said, what she's advocated for, but what she believes and what she represents to an element of the Republican Party that, again, subtlety doesn't work with these folks. You have to completely denounce someone or completely embrace someone. You can't do this middle ground. And right now it looks like complete embrace is the route that they have taken. So I don't actually want to spend too much time on Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, but I think the element of right-wing extremist politics that she is bringing into more mainstream Republican politics and the fact that more mainstream Republican politicians have accommodated and, and coddled this element in their in their in in the big tent of their party is particularly alarming. And it's alarming to me in light of a story that was reported out last week by Chris Joyner at the AJC, who said that several Georgia militia groups were forming an alliance to advocate for Georgia's secession from the Union. One of these groups provided private security to Marjorie Taylor Greene at campaign events during the fall. Um, they were notably at the one of the events that, that Kelly Leffler was at. Um, and this same group has said that they were previously planning for a civil war before the end of 2021. To me, I would have initially read that and thought that's like sort of alarmist, kind of unrealistic. This is a little a little out of bounds here. Um, but Zach Beecham at, at Vox put together a long review of what some scholars of extremist politics are saying 
about the possibility that we are entering a period of right-wing extremist violence. Um, And as you noted, Luke, we are recording on the day that Donald Trump's second impeachment trial starts. The subject of that impeachment trial is an insurrection on the U.S. Capitol where five people were killed. So to me, I am one who doesn't actually like to really entertain these conversations personally, but to me, it doesn't feel like an overreaction to question whether or not allowing this element of extremist politics into the Republican Party is a precursor to a period of political violence that this country hasn't seen since the 1970s. Like the thing that we have to just acknowledge is like this country was founded on political violence. You know, when they tar and feathered people, like that usually killed them because that tar is very, very hot. Um, and so just just the, the founding of this country is one of political violence. So I, I, I frame it that way, not to, you know, be like, ah, oh, boo-hoo, the founders, but it, it's more of a, like, to act like political violence is not possible in the United States is a bad foundational assumption, and a lot of people enter this conversation with that foundational assumption, and so I like to get rid of that as quickly as I possibly can. And also, if you are skeptical, I highly recommend reading that article that Kyle's mentioning because, and I think this is really important to keep in mind, is that the 1970s were full of extremists on the left who were committing acts of terror. And so this is not a thing that is isolated to the right or the left. Both sides can do it. Right now, in our current moment, most of these threats are coming from the right. In the 70s, it was from the left. These are facts, and facts are not disturbing if you're trying to, you know, make good policy and do the right things. And so I have no problem acknowledging the fact that in the 70s, it was people who are closer to my political ideology than it is now. That's not a problem for me because it's a fact, and I am not supporting these violent acts of terrorism when it's on the left. And guess what? I won't support it when it's on the right either. And so I think that's another foundational assumption that should be really easy, which is terrorism is bad, and we don't like it, and no one should do it. <laughs> um, and and yeah, you know, the fact that like that's hard is concerning to me because that goes to the point of your question, which is just like. Is this going to lead to things? And the thing I would say is unquestionably yes. Because here, you know, I'm a stubborn person. (laughs) Uh, You know this, Kyle. People listen to this show probably figure it out by now. But, you know, it's really hard when, like, everyone I look up to says, like, don't do a thing. I tend to, like, deprioritize doing that thing. Whereas, again, if you're not, if you're trying to be too clever, if you're not completely condemning acts like this, you're opening the door to them. Because if you watch the video, which I also highly recommend you do, that the House impeachment managers played, showing the people attacking the Capitol and the things they say, I mean, they are mimicking the things that Trump said. They, they are encouraged by what Trump said. If Trump had ended his speech on January 6th with, well, you know, it sucks, they stole it, but, uh, uh, you know, not much we can do. We have to accept Joe Biden won, you know, won this thing unfairly, but let's all just go home. Like, everybody went home. Luke, one particular Georgia tie-in to this is that the state does have a state law that prohibits private militias from being organized in Georgia. It's a state law that's relatively enforced, and in another report from Chris Joyner at the AJC, he talked to a Georgetown University professor who said that some states have been reluctant to enforce their anti-militia laws because they misunderstand some protections around the Second Amendment, the belief that some of these militias that are privately organized and not state-sanctioned would be protected under the Second under the Second Amendment. And this professor's view is that the Second Amendment does not protect privately organized militias. It does protect militias that have been sanctioned by individual U.S. states. I'm always a little hesitant to throw these questions into a campaign context, but ultimately it is those environments in which we pick our leaders that that make these kinds of decisions. We are going to have a competitive race for attorney general again in 2022. Um, If you did not listen to it yet, check in our feed for our conversation with Charlie Bailey, the Democratic candidate from last time, who's going to challenge 
Chris Carr, the current attorney general again. Do you think that that issue of whether or not Georgia should be enforcing its anti-militia law should be a topic of conversation in in an attorney's general race? in 2022. Absolutely. Because these groups, I mean, again, like they aren't subtle. Like they're not saying, well, we just don't really like how things are going. I mean, like, no, like they're literally saying like, we want to secede from the United States. We want, we expect there to be a civil war. We are buying ammunition because we think there's going to be a civil war. Like that is, that is not subtle. That's not like, oh, they're just really fired up and wanting to, you know, take back Washington in the, you know, like typical politician speak. Like, no, like they are expecting violence and we already have laws on the books. Many, many laws, not just the laws you mentioned, but there's tons of other laws that we could use against these groups to stop them before they do something very, very violent. And I mean, that's that should be done. And Chris Carr should do it. He should want to do it. Because again, terrorism is bad. (laughs) This is just a foundational assumption that, you know, growing up during the George W. Bush presidency, I thought we all agreed that terrorism was bad. Um, So the, the fact that... The war on terror does not include uh, militiaists who want to violently secede from the United States, I I feel like is an oversight, Um, a a not unsurprising one, but it is definitely an oversight because it's just a lot easier to get away with this shit if you're white and (laughs) Christian, like many of these people are. And so on, on that front, it just doesn't surprise me, but it does frustrate me. And it is something that I think Democrats do need to campaign on because I think Joe Biden, the reason he's president right now is because of his vision for like what the problems in the country are right now and trying to address those problems because as he campaigned on, we are in a battle for the soul of America, right? Because like these folks have a vision for America and its soul and they think that the current state of affairs is unacceptable and they want to violently change that soul of america and if you are going to acknowledge that these folks are a problem you have to take the next step of actually using your authority to do something about it and you know i'm not saying you need to lock up every single person that owns an ar-15 or has ever hung out at one of these meetings but for the groups that are just the leadership of these groups that are actively planning to you know, violently overthrow the government, like, you can't do that, (laughs) you know, it's like, it's one of the few things in the Constitution that's, like, a very clear crime from the beginning, uh, you can't, you can't commit treason, and so I, I feel like this should not be as hard as it's been made, and that is truly, truly frustrating for me. One note as we come to a close here about what you said, you know, particularly connecting this back to the war on terror days of the Bush administration, some scholars who say that we actually may not be on a, on the verge of a period of sustained political violence, cite advanced techniques among the FBI in stamping out domestic terrorism threats. Um, and some of those tactics were, were honed during the Bush administration and, and the response to 9-11. The question is whether or not the FBI will actually use those methods to take on right-wing extremists and and domestic terrorists who are white. Uh, That was a priority that seemed to be deprioritized in the Trump administration, um, but it is one that Biden seems a little more sensitive to, um, given his his own origin story for the 2020 campaign. The reason he jumped into it was what happened at Charlottesville, Uh, when a woman was killed, it seems like his administration is poised to take that threat more seriously. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, even Christopher Wray, who was Trump's appointed FBI director, is taking this seriously. They have, the FBI has not been subtle when they've said that they think that right-wing terror organizations and domestic terrorists are the biggest threat that the United States faces right now as far as domestic threats and i mean they seem to be saying the right things and so i'm hoping that internally they are doing the right things to combat this problem the other thing that is like significantly undercovered 
um, that I think is really interesting on this exact question is the fact that Biden has nominated Merrick Garland to be attorney general because like most people know him as the guy who got screwed over <laughs> who should have been a Supreme Court justice. Uh, but the other thing that he's known for is he was the lead prosecutor for both the Kansas City bombing and the Unabomber case. And so he has a lot of experience with domestic terrorism and he is honestly probably one of the you know country's experts on tracking these guys down and building cases against them. And I really doubt that's just a coincidence. Um, I, I'm assuming that that is probably a significant factor in the reason why uh, Biden nominated him. And I really suspect that it, you know, when he gets into that position, because I, I assume Democrats will successfully be able to get him into that spot, uh, he will be a key player in, in these conversations. And um, this is one of those things where I'm grateful that it's not up to just the state government to handle, because one, it's a big problem, and the state government, frankly, might not have enough resources to deal with it, even just the problems that are on the state level. And then two, because of this issue where there are some politicians in the state that see these folks as part of their coalition, that they are less excited about going after them. The last thing as we wrap up here that I don't want to get lost is, you know, we spent the middle portion of the show talking about playing into these narratives about election fraud, whether it's done blatantly or whether it's done um, in a more savvy way. One thing that one of these militia leaders told the AJC's Chris Joyner, he said, we've seen our last Republican president in American history, the ballot box, we tried as hard as we could try, it's not working. Those election fraud, conspiracy theories go well beyond just placating voters who loved Donald Trump and who didn't want him to lose re-election. Like those messages are also absorbed by much more radical groups who are using them as justification for at least planning for more radical action, like advocating for Georgia's secession from the union. That to me underlines how dangerous the game is that's being played by Republicans, that it's not just about trying to outsmart Democratic organizers and and beat them and getting voters to the polls. It it emboldens a group of people in our country who um, are much more dangerous and is is really just frankly alarming. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's really not much more to add to it than that, and it's just a really really big problem that Georgia has a role in fighting uh, both because of Marjorie Taylor Greene and because of the groups that we have in our own state. And I hope that we start to take it more seriously um, it is sort of a joke among some of my friends of how Republican politicians use, you know, the term gang violence to uh, mean lots of things, but the, these groups are no better than any other street gang operating <laughs> Since their goals and their histories tie them to, you know, white supremacist groups, racist groups, secessionist groups, you name it. A lot of bad things. A lot of things that I think polite society, <laughs> the very, very large bubble of polite society, uh, could all say are bad. Um, I, I just see no need to placate these individuals. And, you know, again, as, as I mentioned earlier one of the big things that a state the state government is responsible for is education but the other big thing they're responsible for is the police power and keeping people safe and i don't know what is more dangerous than a bunch of armed people who want to overthrow the government but you know to me that that's something i, I wish they would take more seriously and talk more about because that that is a really potentially nasty situation waiting to happen that could be avoided because these guys aren't subtle. They're not hiding the fact that this is what they want to do. And just waiting for them to do it, it I don't think is the right strategy. It's scary shit, man. Scary shit. 
Alrighty. Well, on that uplifting note, we are going to leave that there for this week. Uh, we will return to issues more directly implicated in the Georgia legislature next week. Uh, the legislature is moving forward on the amended budget. Um, so we will talk about changes that the legislature made to that. There's also going to be other education bills that are debated in the legislature, including some of the issues around around school choice and, and other school funding issues, um, which reminds me, if you have not heard, uh, go back in our feed and check out some of the conversations that I had with analysts at the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. We dove deep on policy, some of the most pressing issues that are being debated at the Gold Dome this legislative session. But for now, we're going to leave it there. So Luke, thank you as always for joining the podcast. Happy to be here. All right, y'all. Stay safe and we'll talk to you again soon. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.